Now, if I were to ask you, uh, how would you uh, know whether a person is a true follower of Jesus, what, what would you say? I would hope that you'd be saying that one of the marks of the genuine follower of Jesus, a key mark, is that the person uh, believes in the truths of the gospel. That's the first thing, isn't it? Uh, if a person does not believe in the truths of the gospel, then no matter how religious they are, no matter how moral they might be, then they're not a Christian. That's the first mark of the genuinely Christian person, that they believe the truths of the gospel. But that's not all, is it? Uh, believing, because believing in the truths of the gospel is not the same as being a follower of those truths. Believing in Jesus does not make a person a follower of Jesus. No matter how uh, doctrinally sound their beliefs in Jesus might be. And in our passage today, uh, Jesus challenges us to consider what, it, what it's going to be what it's going to mean in a very day-to-day sense in terms of being a follower of Jesus. We're going to pick up where uh, Peter left off last week in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. So it'd be very helpful if you'd have that open in front of you. And of course, there's an outline of the talk so that you can take notes and uh, follow what I'm saying. And the outline also lets you know how long the talk's got to go. So that's another advantage of the outline. Now, of course, Jesus was a great communicator, wasn't he? And Jesus had this uh, incredible ability to take um, illustrations from the lives of the people whom he was speaking to and use those illustrations in order to teach great spiritual truths. Uh, We really do need to look at the way that Jesus teaches to uh, see how we can teach as well, because he is the master communicator. And we see it here in verses 31 through to 33, because the people Jesus was talking to were, were people who understood farming. They understood agriculture. And uh, Jesus here connects the life of a shepherd uh, in order to teach uh, spiritual truths. Uh, Someone was saying to me at morning tea time today that they were in Israel a few months ago and they saw that the shepherds in Israel today uh, still herd sheep and goats together. Now, if you want to find out if that's true, you need to come on Tuesday night uh, because Mark and Lauren, they've got the good oil on what happens in Israel today. But they've been doing this for a couple of for thousands of years. They herd sheep and cattle, sheep and sheep and goats together. But sheep and goats are very different to each other, aren't they? They've got different temperaments. Um, I've met the goat out at Egan and Karen's house, and uh, she's got a different temperament to most sheep that I've met. Most sheep that I've met are very, what can you say, um, stupid. Um, <laughs> they're very docile. They're do- very docile creatures. They'll do whatever you want them to do, but not goats. Goats are a bit more, they've got a bit more attitude, put it that way. So they're different. And so they don't always feed well together. 
The shepherd, if they sometimes have to separate the sheep from the goats. It's the same uh, in the night time. Uh, sheep apparently can sort of go to sleep in the cold night air and it doesn't bother them. But uh, not so goats. Goats have to be herded together so that they can share a bit of mutual warmth with one another. Now, so the shepherds, therefore, would often be, for various reasons, having to be separating the sheep from the goats. Jesus is here has understood this. It was part of their world. He was speaking their language. And so he had a captive audience. Now, in verses 31 to 33, Jesus says that the shepherd is himself, the son of man. The sheep and the goats are the people from all of the nations. And there's a separation that's going to take place. But the sheep and the goats are not going to be separated because it's feeding time or because it's the night time. In these verses, Jesus speaks about a coming day of judgment. Uh, he speaks about a day when the Son of Man returns with his angels, that the Son of Man will be seated on his throne and gathered around will be all of humanity and a great separation takes place into two groups. The sheep and the goats. And in verse 33, he's going to put the sheep on his right, which is the symbol of uh, shared power. And he's going to put the goats on his left. Now, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was addressing the Athenians, Paul said that God has appointed a day when he will judge all men by the person whom he has appointed, Jesus that there will be a day of judgment, that Jesus is returning. God has appointed the day. God knows the day. No one else knows the day. God knows when it's going to happen, and it's going to happen. Now, how can we be so sure that there is a coming judgment? Why do you believe that there is a day of judgment coming? I'm assuming that you do believe. You may not believe that. And if you don't believe that, I've got some words for you. The reason that Christians believe in the day of judgment is firstly because we believe the word of God and the word of God says that there is a day of judgment. Jesus himself says that there is going to be a day of judgment. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul says that the, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is the proof of God's intention. That is the proof that God has the power and the intention for Jesus to return one day and to return in judgment. So if someone says to you that they don't believe that there's ever going to be a day of judgment, that you might as well just live it up and enjoy life because you're not going to be judged, how do you answer them? How do you prove to them that there will be a day of judgment? Well, the ultimate proof will be on the day that actually happens, by which time it's too late. But what the Bible would say to us is that we need to encourage people to look at the resurrection. Because if God has raised Jesus from death to life and he has ascended to heaven and there is good evidence that that is the case, the eyewitness accounts are the evidence of the resurrection, that if God has raised Jesus from the dead, then we actually ought to be, we'd be very wise to listen to what else God has to say. Particularly, we'd be very wise to listen to what Jesus has to say about his own future 
And what does Jesus say about his own future? He says, well, I'm actually going to come back again. See, people find it hard to believe in the second coming of Jesus in judgment. I've got to be honest with you. I reckon we ought to marvel more at the first coming of Jesus in grace and mercy. (laughs) That's the true marvel, isn't it? That he should be gracious and merciful to us and die on the cross. His second coming in judgment. Well, we know that there is a judgment that is needed. So, here we have what Jesus is saying, that the Son of Man will return and that... uh, he will separate all of humanity, the sheep and the goats. And what is the destiny of these two groups? Well, in verses 34 through to 36, he invites the sheep to join with him in his, in his eternal kingdom, which, he has, which has been prepared for them since the beginning. That's their destiny. What about the goats? Well, verse 41... Have a look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. Now, what do you think that hell is like? There's a lot of different pictures that people have of hell, isn't there? Uh, Well, these verses give us a few clues, don't they? Um, Do you see what the clues are? Firstly, Jesus says, Depart from me. From me. That's an essential element of hell. Hell is is where a person has departed from God and his son Jesus. Hell is where God is not. Hell is the absence of everything that comes from God. Depart from me. And then he says, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil. That is... The goats are separated from Jesus and they are associated with the devil and his angels. Separation and association. That is hell. And so humanity is divided into two groups and the eternal destiny of each of those two groups is profoundly different. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a poster that hangs in the hall which has got the word eternity written on it. Have you seen that poster? Go and have a look at it next time you're in the hall. And it's, uh, it's in that uh, beautiful copper plate of Arthur Stace, uh, Mr Eternity, who used to write the word eternity on footpaths and walls in chalk uh, throughout the streets of Sydney. He did so for a couple of decades or more. So this poster says eternity, and below it says you choose where. <laughs> All right? So... Which group would you choose to belong to? I mean, if you believe what Jesus is saying, then the answer is obvious, isn't it? So, why would Jesus include a person in his heavenly kingdom? How is a person going to be judged? Uh, Do you see verse 35? It starts with the word for... It's an important word because it means that Jesus is just about to give his reason. Have a look at it, verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, this is why you should be considered to be a sheep and led into his eternal inheritance. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Okay? Well, what about the goats? Uh, in verse 41. Um, sorry. Uh, I meant to say uh, that these are the things which uh, Jesus says are the reasons why a person is led into his kingdom. But the people to whom he's saying these things are going to say, well, when did we do these things? We don't remember feeding you and giving you a drink and giving you clothes. And we don't, when did we do, do these things for you? Uh, the flip side of that is in verse 42. Because there the rest of humanity is told why they will not be joining Jesus in his eternal kingdom. And it's the opposite. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And they too asked the question. They says, well, you know, when didn't we feed you? We don't remember not feeding you. When didn't we give you a drink? We don't remember not doing that. When, when were we not hospitable or, or whatever? When did we not serve you? That's their question. And the answer is found in verse 40. Because in verse 40... The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And down in verse 45, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, what Jesus says here has sometimes been misunderstood or misused by people. I... Some people use this passage to say that if you feed the poor or if you clothe the poor or if you're a person who's a regular prison visitor, then because of that, uh, you deserve to go to heaven and not to hell. Now, what do you think of that? It doesn't really fit very well with the gospel, does it? Um, we don't earn a place in heaven by feeding poor people, as good as that is to do, or by visiting prisoners in prison, or by clothing people who need clothes. We don't earn a place in heaven by doing good deeds. So therefore, you've got to ask the question, well, what actually is Jesus saying here? I want you to have a look again at verse 40. Have a look at verse 40, because in verse 40, who is it who was treated well? What does Jesus say? It is the least of these. What does he say? Can't hear you. The least of these. These brothers of mine. They are the ones who are served. These brothers. Now, in the Bible, the, the, the term brother does not mean fellow human being. Uh, the, the, the Bible doesn't talk about the brotherhood of all humanity. Uh, the, the term brother is used very specifically. You might remember back in chapter 12 of Matthew uh, when there was an occasion when Jesus' family came to visit him and his disciples said to him, look, uh, your mum and your brothers are outside, they're waiting for you. And Jesus said, well, who are my mother and my brothers? It was a rhetorical question. Uh, he gave the answer and he said, uh, it is those 
It is whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. That is my mother, that is my brother, that is my sister. Now, the Bible is very clear on what God's will, for what the, the Heavenly Father's will for us is. His will is that we should trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His will is that in thankfulness for what God has done, that we should serve God and serve other people. That's God's will. And when we believe and repent, we are forgiven by God. We enter into a relationship with him. We can then call him Father because we are his children. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says that when we, be when we believe and repent, that uh, we become brothers of Jesus, that we become co-heirs with Christ in the heavenly inheritance. And so when Jesus talks about his brothers, he's talking about people who have trusted in the gospel. And Jesus identifies with his brothers to the extent that how a person treats a brother of Jesus is a reflection of their attitude towards Jesus himself. Do you remember, there's an example of that in the Bible. Do you remember when Saul was converted along the road to Damascus? Uh, he was heading to Damascus because he wanted to arrest the Christians and throw them into prison, right? So he was persecuting Christians. But on the road, there was a, a blinding light and a voice from heaven spoke to Saul and the voice said, Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting, what did it say? Me. Why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you might say, well, hang on a moment. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting Christians. But that is not the way that God views it. Jesus says, they are my brothers. If you're treating them poorly, then you're treating me poorly. Right? You know that in your own personal relationships, don't you? You treat my wife poorly, I take that very personally. <laughs> you treat her well, I, treat, I take that very personally as well. Now, that's what's going on here. And so, uh, how a person gets included as a sheep and not a goat, has got to do with their attitude towards Jesus. That's what counts. And we see that very clearly in the passage that follows immediately. Because in chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, Jesus uh, tells his disciples that he is about to be crucified. And then in verse 7, a woman comes to Jesus and she's carrying an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, in John chapter 12, we're told that the value of that perfume was about 30 denarii, uh, 300 denarii rather, and that represents about one year's wages for a labouring class person. Now, how many poor people do you reckon could have been fed and clothed through the use of that 300 denarii. I was talking to a mate of mine the other day who's a Christian uh, in a, another church and he was telling me that 
his church completely finances a, an orphanage in Nepal for $16,000 a year. He said that that pays for the rent on the entire complex, that pays the salaries for all of the staff, pays for all of the food and the education of the kids for a year for $16,000. Now, I reckon on my remuneration, I could fully finance several of those orphanages. But I've got to feed my family <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> I'm just saying that, uh, you know, imagine what they could have done with that uh, jar of perfume, you know, one year's wages. Uh, that's why, if you have a look in verse 9, the disciples were indignant. They were angry about it. You know, they're thinking, how many mouths could have been fed? Uh, how many thirsts could have been quenched? How many orphans could have been clothed? They're kind of saying, well, you know, this is not consistent with what Jesus has just said about caring for people. And they're angry about it. But Jesus commends the woman. She says that what this woman has done is actually right. Now, go figure. You know, how can that be true? Well, it's true because her actions were a reflection of her love for Jesus. Now, I don't think this means that we should go and spend millions and millions of dollars on incredible cathedrals, you know, with silver and gold because we love Jesus instead of caring for the poor. This was a, a unique situation in time when Jesus was about to die and this woman goes and gives... She could have spent the money on herself, but she pours it out on Jesus because she loved him. Now, contrast her attitude with the attitude of one of the disciples. In verse 14, Judas, Judas, who was so cranky about this waste of money that could have gone to the poor, what does he go and do? Well, he trots off to Jesus' enemies and sell, sells his soul for 30 pieces of silver. That's how fair income he was. Now, the Bible's got a great deal to say about serving and caring for the poor. Yet, caring for the poor does not qualify someone for a place in heaven. Trusting in Jesus does. Loving and honouring Jesus does. Loving Jesus comes first. But if we truly love Jesus, make no mistake about it, we will love our neighbour, we will love our fellow human being, but even more so, we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Paul puts it nicely in Galatians chapter 6, when he says, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let us do special good to our brothers and sisters in Christ, because they are Christ's brothers and sisters. Now, uh, what are the implications of this? I think there are massive implications. Uh, firstly, it's a comfort, comfort for us, because you and I know that sometimes when we stand up for God or when we... Uh, share the gospel, that people are going to treat us poorly. What this tells us is, don't take it personally. Uh, if they hate you because of the gospel, it's because they hate your brother Jesus. That's the critical thing. Their attitude towards you is a reflection of their attitude towards Jesus. It's also nice uh, 
and encouraging when you meet up with christian people and they're just so warm and so kind to you and you can see through that that they're actually that's a reflection of how much they love christ it's a great blessing but secondly uh, secondly um, I started asking by what you know, what is the true mark of a true follower of Jesus? Believing the gospel is essential, but if the truth of the gospel has penetrated our hearts, then that's going to flow out by the way that we love and serve others with compassion. And when we do that, we are unconsciously serving Christ. There's a couple of dangers that I want us to think through. Um, the first danger is this. From time to time, I've met people who truly believe the gospel but who don't see that they have a need to have close relationships with the other Christians. I'm not talking about cultural Christians. I'm talking about people who really do understand the gospel but they don't want to have anything much to do with other Christians. Sometimes there are people I've met who, who don't go to church they actually don't belong to a church. They just want to be a private Christian between them and God. Um, other times there are people who just kind of make it along to church sporadically. Uh, or there might be people who attend church regularly but still just a very individual thing for them. They're not interested in getting to know the other Christians. So you know, they arrive in, they sit at the pew, the service is over and out they go, out through the door. Now, that's just not consistent because if we love Jesus' brothers, then we're going to want to spend time with Jesus' brothers. And as we do that, that's how we get to know about each other's needs so that we can be serving one another by providing meals to the person who's got illness in the family or is under stress, uh, by visiting people during times of difficulty and by caring for each other practically. Being in church regularly, hanging around afterwards, being part of a Bible study group is a great way of getting to know other Christians. Another danger is that uh, we might be people who are not actually prepared to accept the love and the care of others. You notice that? Um, friends, We've got to be humble and not proud. We've got to allow people sometimes to help us when we need help. And when we reject people's help uh, out of pride or out of not wanting to be a nuisance, then we, we actually deny that person the opportunity to do what God has laid on their heart to help us. So let's be mindful of that. Another danger is that we might be totally committed to true doctrine and we might be regularly actually engaged and involved in the lives of other Christians, but when a fellow Christian is in need, um, that we, we lack compassion. And, uh, you know, if a person's life shows not much love and compassion for the brothers of Jesus, if that's a consistent tone throughout their life, then I think some serious questions need to be asked about their love for Jesus, whether it's fair income or not. But you and I know that even though we may love Jesus, that we will often fail in this area. There are so many times I know of, and probably a whole stack more times that I'm unaware of, when I've acted uncompassionately uh, towards people, when I haven't served when I could have served, and, uh, and so on. 
Um, I suspect that's true for most of us. And so we all need to be encouraged in this. We need to be encouraged to spend time with each other, to get to know each other's needs, and to think very consciously about how we can serve one another. I think it's worth doing some personal reflection on. And so in your bulletins, I've just sort of uh, written a few questions there for you to think about, um, perhaps uh, later today. And here's a question worth thinking about. Who are you caring for in the congregation at the moment? I'm not talking about your wife or your children or your husband. Uh, who in the congregation are you... Is, if you're not caring for someone, then don't take that as a criticism. Take that as an opportunity. Uh, because it's an opportunity to then think through, well, how can I get to know people better? Do I need to join a group or invite people around to the home for some hospitality? How can I engage with people better? And then think through, is there someone who I can serve? with the gifts that God and the abilities that God has given me. It's worth doing some hard thinking about those issues because as we do that, and it's not spectacular stuff, is it? Uh, it's everyday, normal life that we're talking about here. It's those day-to-day -day kindnesses which are actually the mark of a person who truly loves Jesus. Uh, we put Jesus first, we love him first, and then that flows out in terms of our love for each other. So can I encourage you to do some personal reflection on that as I need to do reflection myself? Because when we serve each other in that way, unconsciously we're serving Jesus and it honours him, it pleases him immensely. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the servant heart of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would not be individualistic uh, Christians but that we would see that we are members of this church community and that we would engage with one another's lives interact with each other and uh, father help us uh, not to be selfish but to be unselfish and to consider ways that we can serve one another and to do it and we pray this in jesus name amen